Have you ever wondered what a couple of butt-naked people talking to a snake and pyramids and floating boats and talking donkeys have to do with reading your Bible? That's right, talking donkeys. Talking out of the front, not the back. This is I Read My Bible. This is the podcast where we talk the Bible uncensored. And our goal here at I Read My Bible is uh, just that, to get you to be able to say, I read my Bible, and uh, we want you to do it with confidence. There's a lot of uh, technical things crossing the interpretive bridge. The, uh, the then and there to the here and now, as the uh, interpreters say. You know, six, six, seven thousand years at least, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, like the Old Testament, you know, we get we get some stuff going on that's six years, six thousand years. But there's a button here for that. That was easy. Thousand years before Christ. And here we are in 2021. We're so far away. There's uh, there's a lot of things that we need to do to cross that bridge. Hey, Brad. Yep. It's a bridge worth crossing, though. It is. Um, I mean, and once we uh, just start employing some basic tools, it's amazing how, uh, you know, we can feel it. We can do it with confidence, like I said. Um, I think handrails are really useful on bridges. Um, <laughs> Valid. <laughs> but in all serious, handrails are good, but you don't want to be walked across by your grandparents for the rest of your life. You know, I mean, as a kid, you know, you're parents helping you cross the highway and stuff and they, they want to hold your hand but I don't know about you but I want to read my Bible without my parent holding my hand for the rest of my life you know what I'm saying yeah which isn't to say read it in isolation yeah but at the same time find that balance between being able to read on your own uh, also reading within community just make sure that either way you're not uh, going over those handrails right yeah that's yeah. the whole point so Kind of a controversial title for today's podcast. Uh, it's the question of science in the beginning. Um, I mean, you know, we're living here in the 21st century and we have developed, as we've said, this uh, scientific worldview. Um, of course, you know, we could all point to uh, a funnel that some people would say started with uh, Charles Darwin. Um, and it is kind of a adapted its way into our Christian way of thinking, um, because, uh, rightly people wanted to defend their faith, but, uh, it is kind of in, entwined in our hermeneutics and it's affecting the way that we read the Bible today. And, um, I mean, science is great. It's mm-hmm. brought a, a, you know, staggering jumps in our, uh, in our world today. And we think about how science has helped us in medicine and science is actually really positive. Um, it's just, understanding that science is uh, not necessarily a p- good part of a hermeneutical approach to the text. Absolutely. That's yeah. correct. Um, you know, science, we've been able to do, as you mentioned, such incredible things. I mean, uh, with things going on in our world right now, consider medical science, right? Yeah. Uh, not to mention, uh, we're quite grateful to have these, these, everything, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, just the issue is that when we become good at understanding our world materialistically, well, then uh, we can kind of read back into things before the advent of the scientific revolution, uh, some of our understandings of the universe and our world today. And when we're talking about the Bible, that might not be the most helpful thing. We're not trying to, you know, pit science and religion together, but we're trying yeah. to understand the Bible better because we read our Bibles. Yeah. Um, this morning I was uh, having a conversation with a guy at church and, uh, you know, just 
thinking about this podcast and our focus to be, you know, thinking about hermeneutics and to get people, um, not so much information like this is what the text says, but to get them thinking better, um, putting tools in their pockets so that they can uh, approach it on their own. Um, you know, something that had come up in our conversation was this idea of science and how it's um, causing us to read. And, you know, it was interesting, like the thought, and, and I was in the same boat just myself years ago, had never occurred uh, to this guy that, um, you know, science wasn't on the mind of the author. And so that's kind of like the way that I'd like to open, uh, you know, before we start getting into some of the, the t- our talk for today, just think, think again. Um, it's a good practice every time you sit down that the author is writing, like we've said, you know, 6,000 years before Christ. Uh, I mean, depending on, we're not going to talk about dating of the book, but he's got a worldview, let's say, that is ancient Near East, or is developed in the ancient Near East, and they're really not, they don't have a concept of science the way that we do. They have a different idea of how the cosmos work than we do. And um, also another interpretive uh, thing to remember is when they're writing, they're actually a real person living in a real cultural, historical context with a worldview, and they're writing to a target audience. There's an original audience behind the text. Mm -hmm. The Bible, again, as we've said, is written for you, but not to you. Um, So that is really how we should really uh, just approach Genesis just kind of from the get-go. Um, otherwise we'll find ourselves doing again, what we've called infliction. Um, so I think one, this is a good point to bring up, uh, that Genesis is what we call a book that is written with really high context communication and the authors are employing, uh, literature that's foreign to us, but is very common in their day. Um, uh, hit that rewind button there, please. Oh, say that again. Genesis is written with very high context. Uh, I don't know what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, It's a high context uh, uh, type of uh, document. Oh, yeah. um, What I was getting at, too, was you mentioned that they're employing certain types of literature. Yes. And that's important when we talk about Genesis, because Genesis doesn't just use certain literary devices itself in the formation of literature that is foreign to us, but it also uses other pieces of literature from the Mesopotamian world, from the ancient Near East, that it's interacting with. Comparative literature. Comparative literature, exactly. And, you know, if you want to look up some of the stuff on your own time if you, to you know th- there's this whole world of ancient near eastern studies you know abbreviated ane um it's a ancient big, near east if you a see big that, one too yeah if you see that popping up in your literature that's what we're talking about because this the scriptures of israel uh as they're formed literary uh literarily <laughs> so many words here to trip over um that's uh, okay that rewind button works for infinity so <laughs> we we have unlimited rewind presses yeah. at our disposal <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so you're saying that uh, they're not just employing literary devices, but they're also interacting with literature of their day, right? Yep. Uh, literature yeah. that shares certain concepts uh, and a shared worldview. Yeah. Uh, but also literature that differs in its theological content and claims. And you know, we're going to be getting into this as we're talking about Genesis. But even right off the bat, uh, you can't get past the first few verses of Genesis without. Uh, 
hopefully <laughs> without recognizing that Genesis is saying something against the predominant worldview of the time. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so so uh, I guess what we're trying to say is that um, it's important that we understand and read similar literature of the day so that we can get into the author's worldview and understand uh, what kind of things he's bringing in to the text or what other texts he might be, um, you know, comparing to or relating to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing so, uh, as my good friend Gordon Wenham would say, you know, we'd realize that the author was not communicating science, but ha- or a science about how the world works, but he likes to say he's... Um, comparing uh, or let's hit that rewind button again gordon wenham good old testament guy (laughs) (laughs) you know wenham uh wenham likes to say you know if we do once we start doing this once we start bringing in these other ancient near eastern uh texts well um we realize that the author wasn't communicating science about how the world works right there's something else lying in the text that we needed to dig for yeah, just two comments on that. One, I did not know you were good friends with Gordon Wenham. That's awesome. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't know who I am, but I know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds more like it. Uh, also, secondly, that's a, a really good point. Um, when we talk about the meaning in the text sometimes, there's this reference interpreters like to get into where they say that meaning is behind the text. That's one way of getting meaning out of the biblical text, exegeting a passage, is looking at uh, all the components that were going on in the author's contemporary life and in the audience's mm-hmm. life. And once we get at those things to understand what's being said, uh, that's how we slip into the sandals of those ancient Israelites. That's how we try to put ourselves, posture ourselves into the position of someone who this was initially written to mm-hmm. so that we can get more of uh, uh, the meaning out of this. And when we talk about meaning, uh, I like how you're phrasing this too, um, so far we're, we're building up here talking about the theological purposes and claims of Genesis yeah. as opposed to scientific. Cause that's a big debate that uh, interpreters often fall into. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So when we're talking about getting the meaning of this, it's not just, okay, great. Now I know these facts, these details. Now I can, you know, have cool little party tricks and sound like, I know I'm talking about all that. No, uh, again, always bringing it back to what we're doing here. Um, for the sake of doxology. That's why we want good yeah. theology so we can live it out, worship God better, have a better, deeper relationship with him. Yeah. You know, uh, just a thought that came to my head, you know, that somehow has missed me. Like, you know, the, the authors of the old Testament were priests, you know, a lot of them, like they're, they're priestly writings, not, uh, they weren't scientists. <laughs> I mean, like we wouldn't go to a scientist and expect that he'd be giving us a priestly document when he gives us, you know, some kind of a thing about googly gop that he's been studying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little bit, uh, elementary, but it's, it's a really good point. Um, That's- I, yeah, I just like to actually, uh, there's a really good, uh, a citation I actually want to bring in from uh, from uh, Gordon Wenham, of course, again, because he's our one of our favorite Genesis guys. <laughs> um, but he has a really good book uh, for our readers called uh, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And there's a just a, about what we're talking about here. He, he says, uh, quote, we are obligated to respect the text by recognizing the sort of text it is and the nature of the message that it offers. In that regard, we have long recognized that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, that it's God's intention not to teach science or to reveal science. He does reveal his work in the world, but he does not reveal how the world works, 
End quote. <laughs> not to take the thunder away. I think that's Walton, hey? Not Wenham? Uh, Wenham? Oh, sorry, yes. This is uh, from uh, Gordon, uh, John Walton. John Walton. I mean, they both have kind of similar names, so they're not doing themselves any justice <laughs> being in the same field. <laughs> Gordon Walton and or John Walton and Gordon Wenham. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah, and we'll have a link for that below for the site. Yeah. But um, really good point. Yeah, it's a really good point. So I think this would be a good time to just introduce a couple uh, examples. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, when authors talk about, and, th- and sorry, I should just to context, uh, phrase or to give some context, you know, this idea of science not being uh, found in the text. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, authors often talk about thinking from our intestines, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Hebrewism or whatever the word would be. Uh, they often, in their language and their worldview, like emotions and stuff often had to do with, uh, they expressed it like bodily and holistically. So it's like, you know, for us, say, if you see someone who's angry and fuming, you'll say, oh, they're hot headed. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so on. But yes, uh, about the, for them too, like when we talk about the heart, we, you know, that guy's got heart or look at the heart and that whatever. Right. We know there's a sentimental meaning behind it, but often when we locate that physically, we're thinking, you know the thing pumping right here, all our blood, but for them, the heart, you know, shifted down a few inches to the bowels, yeah. right? That's where you really the, feel your emotions down here. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's actually where that comes from. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they they didn't have the same scientific understanding of how the brain works, right? It was probably just, you know, this thing with a bunch of mush up top, but we actually do like, we seem to like feel things, you know, that gut instinct that we talk about, you know, um, that kind of does funnel from somewhere. Um, but we would never grab that and go, oh, yeah, of course, the guy's saying we're thinking out of our guts, right? Um, and so I just thought I'd, I'd bring that up as a good point um, or like another a good way to compare, you know, other pieces of the Old Testament um, where the authors are not using it to speak about a give us a science of how our brain works or how we think, right? Um, another one that, sorry, another one that comes to head is um, also... Uh, found in Genesis and um, in the kind of the creation science world is this idea of separating waters above and below, right? Um, I mean, there's some creation scientists that have used this as a way of saying, well, yeah, there's, you know, a firmament here and a firmament here and there must have been water. And then that's where they get their water for their flood. And this, this, you know, they're, because they're taking it as a scientific view of um, the cosmos or the heavens, or the two levels of the heavens, and then trying to say that there's like a scientific thing happening here yeah but when you look at ancient near eastern concepts of cosmology of the universe how it works it's uh i don't want to take the thunder away by dropping uh your boy here name his name but uh you know you, you can read it in heiser uh, Ooh, i like heiser <laughs> i knew you'd like that and uh, he doesn't have a name like wenham <laughs> yeah so, or walton <laughs> it's still good though you know maybe he's gordon weiser though <laughs> Oh, the three W's. Of Please Genesis. don't hit the, the rewind button. No, no, no we're saving the button for, <laughs> but, uh, how he even brings up the point, um, mm. as do other scholars, interpreters, uh, they're not speaking scientifically, theologically. And when they view the universe, it's has hierarchy, right? From the lower to this, to there, you can yeah. see that uh, a bit of that understanding reflected in Paul when he, you know, says, yeah, he, he went to the third heaven, right? That's not some weird thing that, uh, 
Um, it's a mystical thing that you got to vibrate to. Yeah, it's like sky, what we would call <laughs> space, and then the third heaven, the spiritual realm. Yes. There's like this tiered structure. That's why also like the, say in Job, uh, talking about the, uh, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Because there's actual foundations in the, this ancient worldview holding mm-hmm. up uh, the earth and, the, and whatnot. Um, all this to say, all right, so we have these pieces there. Does that mean they were horribly mistaken scientifically? No. Who cares? That's anachronistic. That's not even the question. Mm. Anachronism, that's when we're taking things presently, putting it back in there and all that, uh, as we call it, infliction upon the text, yeah. eisegesis, all that. Um, but that's that's not even pertinent to the question um, uh, of what they're writing because they're not trying to write scientifically. They're writing theologically. And this is a point we shouldn't get scared about as modern readers, right? Like, oh, no, they're using flawed science, all this um things that we we know aren't necessarily true about our cosmos and whatnot. But that's a, a helpful word um, we might just drop here for you. In, in When it comes to biblical interpretation, we recognize that God makes certain accommodations, right? So God's not trying to correct these ancient writers and their scientific view of the world because um, he's not trying to teach them science. Yeah. And so he uses use, what they know. Yeah, he uses their understanding uh, <clears throat> so that he can speak to them, right? Yeah. If he starts mentioning to them stuff, say like Newton's laws, all this, da, 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 it's going to be like, what? It's going to make no sense, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's a, that's a good point, actually. We see that consistently throughout the Old Testament. You know, the, the Hebrews were, they came from Canaan. They were Canaanites and God doesn't, God doesn't just dissolve the way that they were worshiping. He actually uses um, you know, part of their methodology and their understanding and he brings it to correction. So he actually uses something, even though it was wrong, but he uses it to bring about right. He he meets them where they're at, I think is what we're trying to say. Because mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, that's just, that's the kind of guy he is. He meets you where you're at. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like this is a good place for a back to the future pun, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we try to go to the, you know, we're inflicting ourselves. you know, we're trying to go back to the future. No, does that work? That's a messed up uh, thing anyway, Back to the Future, <laughs> right? He's got to go back, you know, to like change the future. Anyway, um, <laughs> we don't want to go back to the future with our hermeneutical approach is what we're saying. Um, so, uh, I mean, if we did, you know, we'd be in a, you know, that was originally a time machine that was built into a fridge, by the way. I did not. The DeLorean was an improvise. <laughs> the, uh, oh, I heard about that. Yeah. The logistics of getting the heavy 1950s fridge on and off the back of a truck was over overlooked in the script writing. <laughs> I mean, they, you can only back up a Hino onto the set a few times before someone gets a little bit frustrated. So like, we got to get some integrated transportation into this thing. Um, I mean, we moved away from Star Wars, so... Uh, well, we're getting there. <laughs> week by week. <laughs> we're getting there. Uh, yeah. Um, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so far, right, if you're tracking with us, uh, you know... Uh, yeah. God help you with that. You, but, if you're tracking with us, you're going to find yourself somewhere in the ancient Near East. And so, so far too, right? We're talking about these things, what not to do when you're reading Genesis, right? We're not trying to impose our materialistic understanding of the world on it, right? Because it's not even talking mm-hmm. about that. They don't have the tools or the understanding to talk about that. So we're not trying to, you know, put science into the mouth of Genesis. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to commit any uh, fallacious errors when it comes to interpretation, um, you know, making anachronisms, isogeting, all this stuff. Yeah. So what are we trying to do here? What, let, let's look at some yeah. positive so stuff. What is Genesis? This is what we want to do. So, uh, you know, like I said, we want to find ourselves back in the ancient Near East with, I mean, just picture yourself with some pyramids and some 
cuneiform tablets on the ground and, you know, maybe some exotic food. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so there we're going to find um, ancient Near Eastern mythology, we would call it. Um, and we, we did talk about mythology as not something false. It's the, you know, the kind of narrative that employs uh, gods and humans and their interactions. And there's usually like a star of the show, right? Um, and there we would find, I mean, the closest thing to Revelation that we would find is the myth of Atrahasis is how I'm going to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, I guess this is to say, what we do want to do is compare it to other literature to maybe get us uh, that context. You know, in this myth, we're going to find uh, an ark story, right? There's a man who builds an ark and it saves mankind from destruction. Um, and, in, and in that uh, Mesopotamian literature, um, there's a man who is the sole survivor of this flood with his wife. But in that story, we find that, you know, he's kind of granted this form of immortality from the gods. And um, there's a little bit di different details, uh, you know, about who closes the door. Um, or even, uh, you know, just thinking about um, Genesis, you know, if we want to compare that same uh, myth. Um, I mean, you want to talk about, uh, you know, the mother goddess Mammy and this god Ea that create, uh, you know, out of clay and like slain blood, right? So we have like these other similar stories, these, uh, um, what do we call them? Primeval stories and primeval flood stories, but they got different elements, right? Well, uh, you know, if it feels like we just opened up a huge can on you guys, like the stuff is, um, for me at the tailor end, of my time at seminary. This is when I started becoming aware of this, right? I did my Bible college, then at seminary level, the master's, I was able to go even further. And it was only at the end I started realizing the stuff. And what we're getting at here- There's another hole to go into for the rest of your life. There's a lot of cultures around <laughs> Israel. Yeah. Um, this might be something we may be uncomfortable with when we realize it for the first time, but there's cultures around Israel that are older than Israel. They have uh, creation accounts, they have theologies that predate Israel, right? Yeah. Uh, that, Israel that, didn't that might be an uncomfortable thing when, to realize <laughs> when you realize it for the first time because it challenges some of the things. Uh, I don't know about you, but that I was taught as a kid, right? Well, you know, we yeah. thought like uh, we we put a prime this primacy on uh, on reading Genesis literally, right? Like uh, uh, God made the um, you know everything in seven days, right? So we're like, oh, a week, but. Um, Again, that's importing our focus, uh, um, our way of le uh, reading, uh, our even modern genres onto the ancient text. So they're surrounded by these ancient cultures. There's overlap in a lot of these cultures in their writings about, like you mentioned, these arc stories, certain elements of creation stories. But they, there's, like we t mentioned earlier, there's similarities to the Bible, but also important differences, right? Um so when we're getting into Genesis, we're talking about how it uses this literature um, and how there's little fragments of it there that you can see. This, oh, there's crossover here between, as you mentioned, Epic of Etrahasis, uh, the Gilgamesh Epic of Babylon, these yeah. other stories. There's crossover. But when we're reading the Bible, we're looking at how, in particular, Genesis takes these elements and says something different while using the same material. Yeah. They're saying something theologically different about the world and about God. Um, and we would say that that is a polemical 
uh, form of writing, right? So when we read Genesis, we're aware that there's a polemic going on. Um, I think that's a good point to, to bring up as we get into Genesis, because again, the first verses, as you were mentioning, Josh, we talk about the waters um, uh, in creation. The you know in the beginning there was God, uh, God spoke, he created, and there were the the waters that were separated that he created. Well, when you look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, right, um, there's the goddess Tiamat, who is a dragon, serpent-type figure. Is that ringing a bell at all? Mm -hmm. Uh, She's the goddess of chaos um, and disorder, all that. And in the Epic, the hero, Gilgamesh, he cuts her in half and out of her carcass makes the two waters, fresh and salt, the two halves, right? But in Genesis, there's no conflict, God doesn't have any uh, other deity or any equal to overcome in order to create. He just speaks. And it uses that imagery of Tiamat's carcass without mentioning her because she's not even a reality. So it's a polemic against uh, that form of paganism. And it's really clever how they do it. Uh, I, I like calling it a blow of silence, right? Because it alludes to Tiamat, but doesn't even mention her. She's a non-factor. And God is so sovereign, so powerful, almighty, He's the one being. It's not created by, you know, this party of gods planning, asking themselves what to do. Yeah. There's no conflict. He doesn't have to accomplish any victory over anything else. He is in the beginning. And he just speaks and creates it, right? So, Yeah. And also, too, um, you know, like one of the, the theological um, points of difference there is in, the, in that, um, you know, in this, this other opposing uh, literature, um, the, there's we see the beast is at war with um, with God and that's kind of where we see this you know this display of cosmic uh, battle going on but in Genesis we have human created in the image of God mm. and then we see this uh, serpent image uh, or you know being being introduced into the story and he's actually like the cosmic battle that happens is kind of more in more on in in the flesh i guess you would say than in the cosmos because the serpent is actually attacking his image bearers and then god is going to be the one that will ultimately step step in as a new adam and um and uh defeat him but the there's a shift again um in theology of of how this cosmic battle kind of plays out um, and those are the, these are the kind of the elements that we're going to be bringing in as we work into Genesis and talking about how they are kind of happening in the, I guess, in the back of the, the mind of the author in the text and how he's using them or how they're going to affect how we're going to understand, uh, you know, the creation account, the seven days, um, the scene with the butt naked people that everyone's waiting to listen to, uh, you know, where we have a snake talking to humans in the garden, um, I think this would be a good place to end, but, uh, I mean, I know people are waiting for it. I mean, if it was me, I'd be waiting for it, but, um, it's really probably one of the most misunderstood passages, I think, uh, or, you know, scenes or themes or whatever you want to call it, motifs of the Bible. Um, and I think it'd be a good time to bring up the fact just so we don't forget that we should do an episode on not so much the history historical Adam, but the use of Adam in, uh, our canon as we know it. Um, just, yeah, the theological yeah. purpose, right? And yeah. Cause we don't see Adam being used the way that we often try to use him. You know, again, like that scientific first person created from, uh, you know, the dust of the earth and so forth. Yeah. So 
yeah, great, great points, Josh. And the flow of this conversation, just to re-outline it for you, right? We're talking a bit how not to read Genesis, but also we're going to be getting in how to read it. How to read it, yeah. And as we've been sort of pumping this up for the next episode, you know, we just dropped a lot of detail, right? A lot of things you might not be familiar with or have ever heard, uh, maybe some bewildering things. Um, it's okay. Right now, don't focus so much on the details. Uh, there's always mm-hmm. room to unpack that and study more. But the big picture here, all right, this is what we're getting at. Why we're mentioning all this is we want to ask better questions of the text yeah. so that we can become better readers so that we can really overall posture ourselves to receive as listeners, right? Instead of just being so quick to pick up our Bible, wave it around and say, this is what it means. Yeah. Let's actually <laughs> ask better questions of it. Let's listen to it. And, you know, the whole point of this episode to prepare us for that is to say this is theological writing. It interacts theologically with the world around it, and yeah. it's the world around Israel's understanding of God and the cosmos. It has something to say against that because it has something uh, entirely different to say constructively, right? Yeah. So we're going to be looking at those elements as we get into Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. And just in closing, I just reiterate what we both kind of touched on today is that, you know, Genesis is uh, something that was written, you know, so far removed from us. And it's awkward because, you know, these, the kind of things that we're going to bring up are so foreign to our, even our, just our spiritual worldview and our Christian worldview, because they're just nothing that we have. I mean, at least living in the West, we have absolutely no concept of, you know, these, these multitude of gods and how they, how these stories have developed, like we just, we did not grow up with it. So it seems almost like anti-Christian to even suggest that it can be part of our Bible, but it's, we just need to be okay with it because Mm -hmm. we are living in the 21st century in a very atheistic world where we have a very, at least in the West, if you've grown up with a, um, if you've grown up in a Christian worldview of some kind, you know, it's a, we've grown up knowing, you know, it's monotheism, you know, we have one God and he doesn't share his divinity and, you know, all these other gods were, they're false, right? Um, so it's really hard to get us out of our comfort zone. Um, but if we do, the reward, I tell you, is so great mm-hmm. because, man, the, the Bible just, it just helps it come to life in a way that, uh, you know, you just can't, pre- you can't experience without, uh, you know, doing the work. Yeah. And a concluding note on that, right? This week, I, I was tracking a conversation on someone's Facebook post uh, about biblical interpretation. Someone made the comment, uh, you know, they disagreed with a certain element of, you know, pretty common Christian theology, uh, I would say a core element of it. And they said, because, no, I don't believe in that because it paganizes uh, the Bible. It paganizes Christianity, right? But when you look at God reaching out to humanity, uh, fallen humanity, even uh, exemplified as he calls Abraham, the son of an idol maker, Uh, out of his family, out of his context, out of his whole worldview into something new, right? Uh, It's really, in a bigger sense, God Christianizing the pagans, right? Um, And so just to leave you Mm -hmm. with that thought that this is the Bible. It was from its onset, and it should be now, first and foremost, a formational uh, uh, event in our lives, a formational book. This is supposed to change our hearts and change our lives, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And good. that's that's the re- ultimate reward we're after. Yeah. As we read our Bibles. This has been another I Read My Bible podcast coming to a close. Again, I think this is our first formal announcement that we are approved on Apple. We are on Apple Podcasts this week. You can actually go on to Apple, 
search I read my Bible and you will find us there. So Apple users, you have finally, you know, been delivered to. And of course, look down below. We're also on Podbean for you Android guys, Android geeks, whatever you are. Some people, you know, they associate so far. Tim Horton, Starbucks, Apple, you know. And uh, if you'd like to leave us a tip, you can go down to coffee.com and uh, there'll be a link below. We'd gladly take a coffee tip. We also accept other forms of tips, like if you leave a comment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on that note, please interact below in the comments for those of you that are listening on YouTube. I never uh, considered bringing that up. Some of you that are only listening audio, we are also on YouTube uh, doing that. What they call, I guess we're a video podcast on YouTube. So... Uh, Go below, subscribe, and please, if you leave us some comments and you have, have a particular thing we'd like to bring up uh, related to Genesis or anything like that, we'd love to uh, make it a part of the show. Talk to you on the next one. Ciao.